Welcome back, guys. It's so good to have you here. This is Laura Hutchinson with First Christian Church in Anniston, Alabama. And um, this is the podcast titled Love God and Your Neighbor. This sermon series, this is number two in the sermon series on abomination. And I have to say this was a very difficult one for me. It was a challenge to write because the scripture is so dense and so multi-layered and um, and it was difficult for me to write because the scripture itself is just uncomfortable. I don't care who you are. There were moments when the liturgist was reading the scripture today in church when I thought maybe we should have had the children leave. But it's the word of God. And so we faced it today. Um, and so I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that it is enlightening to you. It was enlightening for me to write it. It was uh, helpful for me as a, as a person of faith um, and for my own personal theology and understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ. So I hope that you get something out of this. If you like it, please share it. Please come to our website, www.fccanniston.org. Come to our Facebook page at FCC Anniston. And I hope that you like us and that you stick with us. What we're doing here at First Christian Church is a wonderful thing. I think, I believe that God is blessing us and that God is guiding us. And uh, you are welcome to join us however you are able to, wherever you are in the world. Peace be with you. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So when I decided to do this sermon series, I just knew that I would include the infamous Roman 1's text. It is the one that I have heard cited over and over over the years when someone was explaining why homosexuality, or worse, why homosexuals were an abomination. So imagine my surprise when I began to study it and did not, in fact, find the word. Did you notice that when I read it, when, when uh, Anne read it, the, there was no word of abomination in that text? So if you look up the scriptures using the word abom look up scriptures using the word abomination on BibleStudyTools.com, this text is included. And yet, in seven different translations that um, that I read, not one of them actually used the word abomination. So just to be sure, I checked with my friend, the Reverend Dr. Carl Gebhardt. He would laugh knowing I used all those titles. He teaches biblical studies at the University of North Alabama. And he told me that the reason that I'm not finding the word abomination in this scripture is because the English word as we know it does not have an equivalent in the Greek language. It doesn't exist in Greek. Therefore, it doesn't exist in the New Testament. So through the centuries, English-speaking interpreters, theologians, and even armchair theologians have inserted the word abomination into New Testament texts out of their own bias and bigotry, not out of accurate translation of the original text. So even though the word abomination or any word that could be translated as abomination is not in this scripture, we're going to study it anyway because everyone seems to think that it is. Amen? And it is commonly used to abuse or oppress certain groups of people nonetheless. 
So before we delve into the individual verses, I want to explain Paul's letter to the Roman church as a whole document first, because it is, in fact, one whole letter. The People's New Testament Commentary says that its overarching outline is clear. The universal sinfulness of humanity has been met by the gracious act of God in Christ, as worked out in God's plan for history that includes Jews and Gentiles, which forms the basis for Christian living. Dr. Gebhardt said that Romans claims that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and no one has the right to point fingers at or judge another person for doing the same thing that you yourself has done. Basically, sin is sin. The wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. This outlines Paul's progression of thought throughout the letter. So the part of Romans that we're focusing on today is where the argument of the letter begins. The first point being that all human beings, religious and non-religious, Jews and Gentiles, are sinful and in need of God's grace. Paul first shows in Romans 1 the sinfulness of the Gentiles, who do not have the law of God. Romans 2 is written specifically to the Jews who do have the law of God. That's how they go together. So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but because God has shown it to them, Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made, so they are without excuse. What we're talking about here is knowing God. Knowing God as the creator of all things. God exists Historically, knowing God, the creator, exists, that, that it exists, it has not been as much of an issue for the Jewish people. Although, they have had their problems, right, with being loyal and faithful to God only. But they at least know God's name. They know God exists. But for the Gentiles in this case, the Roman Gentiles, they have not acknowledged the one true God. And Paul says that there is no excuse for it. The proof of God is in everything. It is everywhere, and it has been there since the dawn of creation. Knowledge of God is inherent within us, and while we can't see God or see God's power, we can see the evidence of God in everything that God made. Paul is questioning how it's possible that Gentiles have gazed upon the perfection of creation and have actively chosen to ignore the truth of God that it tells. I've often wondered this myself, have you? I've wondered how people could look at a flower in all of its loveliness, its fragility, and its strength, and not thought, God... I've wondered how people could witness the majesty of a tree or the perfect balance of an ecosystem or the miracle of a single cell and not think that someone designed it. 
And apparently God wonders how anyone can be in the presence of creation and not be moved to worship the Creator. Because this is not just about knowing that God exists. It's about giving yourself over completely to God. It's about making everything you do an act of worship. Beyond the fact that the Gentiles have worshipped false gods and idols, the human condition of sin takes away even those who do recognize the existence of the Creator, leading us to become not God-centered, but self-centered. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. The commentary says that in the Old Testament and Jewish thought, idolatry is the primal sin from which all other sins spring. Modern sophisticates may presume to have outgrown primitive idol-making, But Paul identifies idolatry as serving the creature rather than the creator. Orienting one's life to things in the created world, including status and self-image. This is idolatry. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's important to understand, first of all, that God never gave up on anyone. This is a thought that has been promoted by Christians ignorant of what is actually saying here. God never gave up on anyone. This means, and all of the other times that Paul says it, that since people chose to ignore God and to worship other things, then God allowed them to make that choice. He gave them up to their choices. That's what that means. God allowed them to behave however they wanted to behave. We're talking about free will. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. That the world may know.com, and it's important that I include this. In preparing the sermon, I wanted to make sure that I'm using references that the conservative world respects so that people might be able to hear me better. You can't mistake that my references are biased in one way or the other. So that the world may know.com is a website and a video. Um, teaching movement that is sponsored and supported by Focus on the Family. Okay? They said, I referenced um, the article that uh, last week called Fertility Cults of Canaan is from this website. 
You may remember that I talked about the worship practices of Baal, Moloch, and Asherah cults, and how those practices included child sacrifice and temple prostitution. Well, fast forward to 56 AD when Paul is writing this letter, and Baal has transformed into Zeus, or Jupiter in Rome. And Asherah, that cult grew into the cults of Aphrodite and Artemis, or Venus, in Rome. The names of the gods were different. The worship practices were as immoral as ever. The article says that one report claimed that there were as many as 1,000 cult prostitutes in Corinth alone. That's the city of Aphrodite. The only worship practice that didn't continue was child sacrifice, thank God. Homosexuality as we know it today was completely unknown during the time of Paul and the early church. That obviously translates to the time of the Old Testament as well. Meaning there was no concept of a sexual orientation that dictated who you might or might not love. The words homosexual, gay, lesbian, they didn't exist. And neither did any of the other words represented by LGBTQ+. Concept of them did not exist. I mean, the word heterosexual didn't even exist. So if these modern concepts and words didn't exist at the time when the Bible was created, then it stands to reason that these passages are talking about something else altogether. So the commentary tells us that Paul regards same-sex acts, like the other sinful acts that he mentions later in our scripture, as the willful choice of a heterosexual person who has intentionally perverted the way God created him or her as an individual, as an act of idolatry. The concept of homosexuality as a sexual orientation, not chosen by the person but received as a part of God's creation, was completely unknown to Paul. In much of his argument in Romans 1, Paul reflects the line of thought of Hellenistic Judaism, according to which Gentile idolatry inevitably led to immorality, immorality and the exchange of natural sexual roles, an argument explicitly developed in the wisdom of Solomon. Furthermore, the Greek words used in this text imply that the shameless acts were shameless because they were done in public. Not because they were done. They were shameless because they were done in the process of worshiping a false god in public. And so it was shameless. What Paul is outlining is the human condition of sin, not one specific sin. He is explaining what led the Gentiles to their sinful condition that Jesus came to take away. Rebelling against God, worshiping something that isn't God, doing anything to show reverence for anything or anyone other than God is sin. He's giving examples of ways that we have chosen to turn away from God. The list is not exhaustive. These are not all of the actions that God considers to be sinful. Instead, what Paul is doing is he is painting a picture of what life is like without Christ. He was illustrating why sin leads to death, thus leading us to the understanding of why we have needed Christ all along. That's the purpose of Romans. So Paul said they were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Paul does not see sin as a sign of human weakness. He sees sin as an act of pure rebellion against the sovereignty of God. And it is rebellion, because if you remember, knowledge of God is in all of us. It is an inherent part of our created being. And so turning away from God is a choice that we all make in our sinfulness. For so long, people have read Romans 1 and thought that it was about them. And ignored the fact that, no, it was about us. Humanity. Everyone. So now all of the scriptures that we've covered today, it has focused solely on the sinfulness of the Gentiles, the heathens, so to speak. The bad ones. But I want you to go home today and read all of Romans 2 and maybe even 3. These next chapters are aimed at the Jewish Christians, the ones who supposedly have everything figured out and who are looking down their noses at their Gentile brothers and sisters, those sinners. In Romans 2, he is talking to people who are pointing their fingers. Does this sound familiar? How many times have we heard Romans 1 being used to cut down, judge, and even destroy others? And I bet that when I read this to you, you are going to wish that you had Romans 2 in your hip pocket when someone started throwing that text at you. The first three verses of Romans 2 go like this. Therefore, you have no excuse. Sound familiar? The Gentiles had no excuse, and neither do you. Whoever you are... When you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Amen? Amen. Now, I can hear it already. Oh, but I don't do what they do. Right? I would never do such a thing, so I can stand in judgment. It's not a problem. But the whole essence of Romans is that all sin is the same, and it carries the same penalty of death. All sin begins with idolatry. All people sin. Therefore, you, a person who are just as guilty of sin as they are, whoever they may be, We are all guilty. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You see, Jesus didn't come just for the heathens and the pagans. No. He came for the righteous and the godly as well. He came for each person who was lost in the darkness of sin. He came for those who kept turning away from God. He came for the pagan and the Jew. 
He came for the cult prostitute and the self-righteous Pharisee. He came to shine a light into the darkness that we didn't even know we were standing in. He came to save me, a sinner. And he came to save you as well. Jesus came because even as we turned our backs on God, even as we continue to turn our backs on God, God loves us without any conditions. God doesn't want us to die. God doesn't want us to dwell in darkness. And so God sent a light for the world, the whole world. And now we are all able to see clearly. Amen? Amen.